Welcome to the Road to Wellville podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Terrell. Together, we will explore our own wellness journeys, nurturing body, mind, and spirit. Join me as I talk to top wellness professionals from all over the world with a wide range of backgrounds and specialties. I invite you to discover, discuss, and design your own path on the road to Wellville. Welcome, listener. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, Geraldine Keneally. Geraldine is a mother of two amazing girls, one in fourth grade and one high schooler. She is a fierce advocate for children, and today we're going to talk about what it's like to have a child on the autism spectrum and how she advocated and the actions that she took to get her daughter the amazing places that she is today. Geraldine, I met you when your daughter Katie was in my first grade class. I knew that she was on the spectrum, but I was continually amazed by her. She was a top student in my general ed class, and she got along great with her peers. And then I was further inspired when I got to know you and your family a little better, and I heard more of her story and your story. So I am super excited to learn more and to share your story with my listener today. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. That's a very warm welcome, and I'm excited to be here to to chat and share a little bit about my story with uh, Katie. Excellent. Thank you so much. So I was thinking that we could kind of start at the beginning of your story. And I was just wondering if you could take us back to the beginning and, and maybe tell us about some signs that you saw and how Katie was diagnosed. Sure. Um, Katie, uh, from the beginning was a little difficult. We did two rounds of in vitro uh, IVF to have her. um, And she was just uh, such a joy when she was born. Uh, We were excited to finally add into our family a second daughter and Katie developed, I want to say Katie developed pretty much on point for most of the milestones. Um, when she, when she reached about 14, 15 months, I started to see changes in her. Um, it started with, um, really people always ask me, when was the exact date? You know, when exactly did it happen? And it was a a continuous gradual thing that kind of sped up about 15 months going into 16 months. She used to say words like mama, dada, og for dog. Uh, The eye contact was there. Then over the course of a few weeks of that fall, um, it all started to go away. I would say that Katie pretty much disappeared from the child that we knew to a different version of Katie all within about six weeks, which was very very scary. Mm -hmm. Go into her room and she would be cheerful and stand at the edge of her crib and say ma, or she'd say good morn, putting two words together. Um, And then over that period of a few weeks in that fall, when I would go in, I would call her name. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't respond. I would put her little face up to my face and it was like she was looking through me. Um, These were all really, really scary things. My husband started noticing it too. Um, And just from from that point, in, in hindsight, I would say that when Katie was, you know, very little, like four or five, six months old, you know, even a newborn, she did not like to be swaddled, which I thought was weird. Mm. most babies like to be swaddled she didn't like pacifiers she didn't like any kind of thing in her mouth 
uh, feeding her was a bit of a struggle. Um, also, she didn't crawl. She literally went from standing up at the edge of a table to walking. She never crawled, which at the time, of course, you think my child's a prodigy. This is right. <laughs> um, but in hindsight, you know, that that's skipping a major neurological developmental milestone by not crawling, uh, which is another flag mm -hmm. um, that we we learned about later. But um, that's those were kind of the signs, uh, the language and losing her language is what really was a huge red flag for me. Um, her eating habits changed. Um, she became almost, I want to say, she always had to have cow's milk. She always had to have carbs. She was starting to stray away from the little protein that she was eating, which was also, you know, very scary for me because mm -hmm. about her overall nutrition and health. Um, in regards to getting her diagnosed, um, I had gone to our pediatrician when she was at about now at this point, maybe 18 months. Um, yeah, from 16 to 18 months. And I said, she's not talking. She's lost her language. And he was pretty receptive. We have a good relationship with our pediatrician. And, you know, he said, give her a little bit of time, give her this. And I said, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I will give her, to, give her two weeks. If nothing happens in two weeks, I'm coming back to you and I need a referral. A referral for mm -hmm. her time, I wasn't quite sure. Right. Like I said my older daughter was, you know, typical, didn't have any problems. People say, don't compare your children. I say, that's BS. Of course you compare your children, especially when it comes to development. Mm -hmm. Baby, you know, your first child did this, your second child doesn't do that. Mothers notice these things. Mm -hmm. So ended up going through, you know, the motions with our insurance. The first thing I did was I got her into speech. Um, and around the time I got her into speech, I also got her into an adult slash peds neurologist that was covered by our insurance. Um, and that neurologist spent, uh, I want to say about maybe 20 minutes with her and turned to me and said, she's autistic. Wow. And I said, uh, I said, whoa, you know, because it's almost, it's, it's very hard to hear that, um, you know, especially in the beginning. And I said, what do you mean? And, he, you know, he said, she doesn't make eye contact. She doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. Her behaviors, which at the time were, you know, were, were very um, difficult. You know, she was doing a lot of head bobbing, a lot of, um, a lot of things with her body, um, moving around, she was hard to sit still, kind of like ADHD, but also kind of there was something else that was in part with that at the time that we were thinking. But he turned to me and, you know, when I started asking questions and he said, Mrs. Ken Mrs. Keneally, this is your new normal and you need to accept it. She'll never know that you're in the same room as her. Wow. And. Yeah, she'll never know that you're in the same room as her. She'll never know what you're saying to her. So you just need to accept it and take her home and make the best of it. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to take that. You know, I'm, I'm not taking, I, I'm glad that I had enough strength in me, even though I was pretty, you know, down about it. I had enough strength in me to say, you know what, just because you're a neurologist, just because you're a doctor, just because you're this and that, you've only spent 20 minutes with my child. 
And even though you've handed her this diagnosis and I need your ICD-9 code to move on with insurance um, for therapies, I am going to do everything I can to get her better. What that looks like, I remember thinking on that day, what that looks like, I'm not sure, but I know it's just not taking her home. And yeah. The best of it. Yeah. So that was, was that kind of your intuition that was, that was like your mother's intuition that was coming in right there. I mean, did it just kind of come in immediately where you were like, yeah. it, it, it did. It, it came in immediately with this, you know, mothers are protective over their children. Let's, mm-hmm. let's be honest. The term mama bear didn't just coin itself. Right. <laughs> but I want to say that um, I did, you know, feel this, overwhelming sense of, of wanting to care for and responsibility um, because I loved her so and I had done so much to have her, like I said earlier, two rounds of in vitro is no joke, mm-hmm. to bring her into this world. And I thought, what am I going to leave my older daughter? Am I leaving her in the position of a caretaker mm-hmm. eventually? Um, how is Katie going to be? I need her. I want her to be to the full of her potential. And it was just this overwhelming, overwhelming feeling of, no, this isn't it. And a lot of that too um, has to do with my faith. Um, you know, I, I kept, even at my lowest times uh, during the time that she was diagnosed and, you know, in the months that followed and in the years that followed that were hard, I didn't, I got this overwhelming feeling, especially on the days that I was low, that this wasn't the end, that that God wasn't just leaving me here, mm. that she that she was going to push forward even in the plateaus, and that's that's what came. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I can imagine that there must have been a lot of highs and lows there, and uh, we oh, talk. Yeah. I've talked on this podcast with a few other mamas. You know, we do talk about that kind of mama instinct. And um, yeah, like you said, that drive to just protect your children, no matter mm-hmm. what, and do what's right, even though, you know, you're having a doctor telling you one thing. And I, I've spoken with yeah. other, um, other guests that have had the same experience where doctors have kind of left them at this place where they said, well, you know, this is what I can do for you. And that's not acceptable to the patient, (laughs) right? So you decide, okay, now it's time for me to take things into my own hands. So um, can you talk a little bit about what happened after that that day with the neurologist? Sure. Um, After that day with the neurologist, you know, I I allowed myself to, you know, feel all the sadness um, that comes with someone telling you your child isn't going to be what you thought your child was going to be. And after I allowed myself a good one hour, I think of a pity party, I um, had this overwhelming feeling that this child needs me more, more than ever. So I started looking for resources. I started um, searching everything I could. Um, I reached out to uh, Regional Center of Orange County, which um, was, was good and is still good. Um, and they kind of they put her, you know, did an evaluation and they kind of thought the same thing. Okay. She's, they did a full behavioral evaluation and said, yeah, you know, she's on the spectrum. We could offer her this and this, which, you know, at the time, you know, you're, you're a mom and you see these little babies and these little kids and 
Katie was like, you know, 21 months, 22 months. And I thought, my goodness, they're, they're saying that she needs to go to speech for an hour and a half a week. And they're saying that she needs to have ABA for six hours. Oh my gosh, this poor little kid has to work so hard. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of therapies. But in the big picture, I'm glad that I kind of caught on to really how things are run. And I knew that she did a lot more than what they were offering. So I ended up accessing my insurance. Um, we have good insurance, thankfully, through my husband's work and got her into um, to have an FBA with, um, with a ABA um, company and see what their recommendation was with their, um, what they call the, you know, BCBAs. Those are basically the, you know, supervisors for behavioral um, therapy and saw what their recommendation was. And I remember saying to him, I said, I'm not taking a minute under 25 hours. So if you don't want to offer 25 hours or anything greater than that, I'll move on. Because I felt Katie needed more of that because in all of my research at the time, the children that were yielding the more, the, you know, the better outcomes were the kids that were getting what, you know, these huge packages that were mm-hmm. doing a lot of ABA one-on-one, but a lot of hours, you know, and what regional center was offering was great, but they were also, you know, limited, you know, with their fundings and stuff. So I had to go through, you know, my insurance, like I said, and at Katie's, um, at Katie's height, she was about 30 hours of ABA. Uh, I had her in also private speech for one and a half hours a week, uh, three 30-minute sessions. I had her recommendation for occupational therapy initially was 30 minutes, which was a joke. I was like, this child has a lot going on with her body. Like she would um, seek pressure, which I know sounds weird, but you know, at the time I wasn't sure what was going on, but I would find her in her high chair, like almost like Superman pushing on her um, straps of her chair. Like she was trying to bust out of them, you know, mm-hmm. she um, wasn't able to regulate her body. You know, her feeding was all over the map. Um, so I knew that she needed occupational therapy more than what she was being offered through regional. So once again, I accessed my insurance the insurance, you know, recommended, um, I believe it was one hour. Um, her occupational therapist at that time, who's still our occupational therapist, uh, is a graduate of USC. I kind of, you know, had a lot of conversations with her and I opted to pay privately to have a evaluation done through USC for a recommendation. Their recommendation was two hours of occupational therapy I took that to the insurance along with a whole bunch of other things because you have to fight insurance mm-hmm. to get what you want. Um, and I fought them and they, they bent over and they gave it to me. So Katie went basically from a very small program to a very large program. And she stayed on that program for, um, for quite some time, for about three years full force, which was, um, which was good for her because that's what she needed. She needed more than what was being offered. 
the mama bear in me said she needs more than what she's being offered. And I fought for it. Yeah. And it's my understanding, um, I think from you and from other conversations I've had that that early intervention is so important, like to Huge. get that much early. Huge. Everything I read and all the research I did, um, you know, you're not going to get that time back from the early intervention is imperative. You have, I met a lot of parents along the way that they would just kind of sit on it. You know, our kids were turning three, our kids were turning four, and they were still trying to do the same stuff. Whereas I was pushing the stuff that I saw worked and I knew that 80% of the brain roughly was going to be developed by age five. So on every happy birthday of Katie turning two, three, four, and went up to when she turned five, it was always bittersweet for me because I thought, okay, you know, I'm in a race against the sun. Mm -hmm. Really. And that's what early intervention is, um, is to try to maximize that amount of time because it's harder to rewire the brain after it's already been set and once they're older and that mm -hmm. can't be done of course it can be done with a lot of hard work and to the maximum of whatever their ability is but why not try to give them the best advantage from the get-go i always looked at my katie and kids like katie who um struggled to just do the bare minimum which was sit and attend you know and i thought she needs so much more. How am I going to get her more? And if I don't speak up for her, no one is. Yeah. No when, one will do it like mom. Absolutely. And when you told me the story, I remember when you said that mm -hmm. you had this neurologist who told you that she was never going to be aware that yeah. any that anybody else was in the room. I mean, that just blew me away because being her first grade teacher, I mean, she was such a hard worker. She was one of my top readers and my top writers. And yeah. you know, it just, yeah. it, it just blew me away. The, you yeah. know, the progress that she made with your guidance and with all this support, you know, over what yeah. that was probably four years from yeah. the time she, they started something like that. Yeah. Yeah. She, four or five yeah years. From, the, from the time she ended up in, in your classroom. Yeah. It was about uh, four and a half, five years. Yeah. And, and that's a, you know, that's a big kick in, in the gut when someone tells you that your child's never going to even know your name. He even told me at, um, in that same conversation that she would eventually get to the point where she might have to be institutionalized, that she'll be on medication for the rest of her life in order to address her behaviors. And it was almost like, a, you know, in the Charlie Brown peanuts where you hear wah, 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 right. wah. Um, it teacher. almost kind of, yeah, it almost, you hear the teacher doing that noise. And it, that's kind of what it sounded like to me towards the end, because I thought you have no idea who you're dealing with. Yeah. No idea. And believe me at that time, I didn't even know that I would have the strength, the tenacity, the grit to push forward at the speed that I pushed forward, which was by all means intense. Yeah. I mean, um, but we also, um, you know, besides her traditional therapies, we also, you know, I was researching everything I could into uh, other areas of that would help her. Yeah, that actually transitions really nicely into my next question. I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you about any like holistic therapies that you guys tried at home to complement this OT. And, um, you know, ABA, I, was at, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me more about ABA. What does that um, acronym stand for, for a listener okay. who might not know? Here, it's a, uh, Applied Behavioral Analysis, uh, ABA. 
Um, it, is, it is basically a behavior modification. So a lot of the kids that have autism have behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. He was definitely one of those children. Um, ABA is driven by, you know, a stimulus and then a response and then a reward. And it's almost kind of like, you know, when, when they were teaching Katie to sit and attend, she really wanted this, you know, little, little snake toy, you know, that was being offered. Well, you want the snake toy, then you're going to show me this and this, put your hand A, put your hand B, sit and attend. Okay, here's your reward. It was almost like the stimulus, you get a response, you get a reward. And so with the ABA company that we had, we, um, we had a team. They usually comprise them of a team, depending on how big your pack, you know, your program was, which for Katie, her program was really big. So I had uh, four um, ABA uh, gals and I had a BCBA, board certified behavioral analyst uh, that would supervise them. And we would come up with, you know, different things for Katie. Um, I would meet with the BCBA every week, um, not only for parent ed, but also, hey, this is what's going on this week. Hey, I noticed this. You know, it's really important to keep a, a, a really strong communication with your team. Um, and, you know, the team that I started off with wasn't exactly the team I ended with. Um, I started with five, then we went down to four. You also have to make sure that the personalities kind of align a bit. Um, by the end of Katie's, you know, a couple of years in ABA, we had an amazing team. So shout out to team uh, Katie K, who I know is probably listening. Um, but my core team of uh, four gals, we were all on the same page. And that was to get Katie to reach her full potential. And that's, um, that was a good thing. You know? Yeah. Kudos to team KDK. Cause I, I can attest <laughs> yeah. to the fact that you guys yeah. made some leaps and bounds. Yeah. And uh, you know, and it didn't go without mom, you know, without once again, you know, my mother instinct and my mama bear being like, I wasn't afraid to say, Hmm, this isn't, this isn't working or this person isn't working, mm-hmm. but we were able to, uh, like I said, especially the last three years come up with a great team. They, they all couldn't have been any more different. Um, but what, that was wonderful because it all complemented very nicely when mm-hmm. it to Katie. Um, other stuff that we tried. Um, yeah, that was my other question. Sorry, yeah, yeah. if there was any kind of holistic yeah. therapies that you tried at home, yeah. including yeah, diet. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to, once I saw what was going on in regards to Katie's behavior, I figured, okay, I have the traditional things down pat. I've got the ABA. I have speech. Uh, which we were at a wonderful, wonderful speech place over here in West Garden Grove, um, and also had her OT. And I thought to myself, there's got to be more than this. Like, this is all wonderful. But like I said, I wanted to, to maximize as much as I could in this growth period of hers. So um, I started doing a lot of research on my own, and I heard about gluten and casein. And I thought to myself, well, what the heck are these things? Um, I keep kind of hearing them swirl around in the autism world. What exactly are they? What do they do? And then once I found out, okay, gluten is in pretty much everything. Casein is in a lot of, a lot of things, including uh, what she is drinking and what she's addicted to, which at the time was cow's milk. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, well, there's, there's a connection there somewhere. So um, 
the more research I did, I had told my husband, I said, you know what, I'm going to remove, I'm going to remove the gluten. And then I'm going to wait a bit and I'm going to remove the casein or, you know, vice versa. And she was such a picky eater that this really concerned him. This really concerned my pediatrician. And I kept saying to, I told my pediatrician, just trust me. I go, I'm not going to let her starve. I go, but I need to try this to see if this will work. Because at this point, um, Katie's eye contact was very poor. Her attention was very poor and her speech was, was pretty much all gone. Mm. Grunting. I mean, I would get grunts from her, uh, which was, you know, heartbreaking because that's not how she was, but she, right. she had regressed so much. Um, so I ended up uh, removing casein. I believe casein was the first thing, uh, the cow's milk. She was addicted to milk. Like mm. she would open, she would hit the fridge, you know, and as soon as she would see the milk, like she would like try to take the gallon, you know, half gallon of milk out of the fridge, um, which was just the vitamin D's cow's milk. So I ended up um, removing, removing the cow's milk and the casein. I replaced it with almond milk. So I started looking for alternatives. Okay, what's the alternative to this? Um, at the time, kind of almond milk was really kind of all the rage for alternative. Um, I read into that, okay, not a lot of protein, but you know, it is a good substitute. So I removed that um, cheese. She, you know, would eat cheese. I removed that. I found an alternative cheese, uh, Daya, I believe is a brand, D-A-I-Y-A. Yes, I love it, by the way. There's so many good, <laughs> there's so many good um, yes. alternative cheeses these days. Mm-hmm. And yogurt too, ice mm-hmm. was uh, so delicious. Yes. A great brand. And basically I was a mom that shopped at all the, you know, regular markets. All of a sudden I became very, very good friends with um, Whole Foods and Sprouts. Right. <laughs> and uh, so what I did was I removed the cow's milk. I'll never forget it because it was February 1st. By February 18th, her eye contact was starting to come back to us. Wow. Her body seemed to calm down. Her words that were gone between, you know, the time that she was diagnosed and everything, and it was completely gone. She started making utterances, which was also another huge, huge progress point. Mm-hmm. I said to my husband, I said, I'm on to something. I'm going to remove the gluten. I didn't want to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I read said, remove one. Yeah. Wait a few weeks and remove the other. That way you're able. To, and I kept a log. Hello, I'm very type A. Mm-hmm. I kept a log on everything. I ended up removing yeah. um, the gluten. So I substituted with um, a lot of, uh, you know, brands that don't have gluten that are gluten-free. Mm. Like uh, rice and like rice oh, flour. Yeah. and Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. I found um, su- substitutes for everything, which back in 2013 was a lot harder than it is now. Mm-hmm. now it's like so much more accessible. But back then it was a little bit harder. Um, I was, you know, baking things, making things. I found a great gluten-free, casein-free, nut-free place in Fountain Valley uh, called Sensitive Sweets that um, was baking things that Katie liked. Yeah, we love that place too. Yes, I yes, think you turned uh, me on to it. Yes, yes, they're wonderful. Um, 
And so those were treats for her. And she knew when we pulled up there that that was a treat for her. So I removed casein, I removed gluten. Um, by this point, I realized, okay, I need to, at the same time, I should say simultaneously, I realized I need to treat the whole child. Mm. And that was something that just kind of came into my mind. If I'm treating her traditionally with ABA, OT, speech, and now I'm tapping into her nutrition and I'm trapping, tapping into her overall health, I need to treat, I need to see what I'm dealing with to treat the overall well-being of my child. So, but I went to my pediatrician and I said, I need lab work. And he said, okay, like, what are we talking about? And I had a list. I had a list of all these things that I had read that autistic children were deficient in, mm. and minerals, and that these could really play a part in how her gut works and how her, her mind is thinking and clearing up that, what I would call a fog brain, because that's what I often refer to Katie when I look back at her, when she wasn't looking at me, when she wasn't talking, when she almost seemed like she was kind of in her own world. She was in a fog, you know, she was kind of in this daze. So mm -hmm. I went to the pediatrician with a whole list of different um, labs that were covered under my insurance, just besides a regular CBC. I had him do a IgG food allergy panel. I want to know if she was allergic to anything. Did we get any markers on that? Lo and behold, you know, she was, her markers came back um, for casein that mm. she, what, you know, showed, you know, not, not extremely high, but noticeable. Like a sensitivity. Yeah, sensitivity to cow's milk. Also her uh, vitamin D, 20 mm. uh, hydroxy was very deficient. Mm. You know, I think it should have been between 25 and, you know, I'm going to say 25 and 100. Most kids are usually around 50. Katie was like five. Interesting. Especially and, with the milk that she was drinking. Right, right. Another red flag. So I thought to myself, okay, her body for some reason is not absorbing you know, these things. So I thought to myself, well, what can, you know, what can I do? So, um, well, especially with the vitamin D, because, you know, it has to do with the calcium and, you know, regulates mm -hmm. the calcium, but also stimulates um, the body's natural detoxification. Mm -hmm. And that was another thing I kept hearing in the autism community, which, you know, is big, as you all know, um, that, you know, a lot of parents were saying, hey, my child, I don't think is, you know, detoxifying, whether it was, you know, vaccines or certain foods or whatever it was, it's almost like it kind of gets stuck, stuck. Mm -hmm. you know, and almost like a, if you could equate it to like, a, you know, plumbers and your pipes, you know, in your kitchen sink, when it backs up, it backs up, it's not going down, it's not mm -hmm. going it's just staying there and it's, it's, you know, stagnant, but I ended up, you know, running a bunch of labs. And like I said, she was deficient in some areas and stuff. And, um, so I started, you know, pumping her with, you know, vitamins and everything was organic. Um, I refused to give Katie anything that had, um, you know, pesticides. I changed everything. Our cleaning mm -hmm. products, our detergent, um, bamboo toothbrushes, um, I was doing everything BPA free, um, allergy free, everything from sunscreen to the pillow she slept on to mm -hmm. her because I thought here you, you know, the child sleeps if you're lucky, you know, six, eight hours and 
do you want them to sleep on stuff that might have toxins and pesticides or do you want them to sleep on organic and stuff that's, you know, sensitive free? And so I looked at it, like I said, the whole child, but I looked at it from all aspects. What is touching her skin? What is she ingesting? That's going to change. So everything she was ingesting, everything that she was close to, how to be BPA free, how to be um, organic. All of, she loved strawberries, how to be organic. Um, the meat I bought was organic. Um, I also started her on probiotics, mm. which was another thing. I started uh, her on a probiotics from Whole Foods and um, was just mixing it in her, in her little juice bottles and stuff. And she was downing it every, every day. So I knew that she was getting that. Um, the multivitamin drops were also, you know, wherever I could, I would, you know, do that with her. Another thing I did was um, essential oils. I used a lot of, um, you know, I diffused a lot and I did a lot of um, lavender for her anxiety because she was a very anxious child, um, which went hand in hand with her um, sensory processing disorder, which um, is what they were working with in occupational therapy with her. Because not only was Katie, you know, being, not only was she diagnosed with autism, but she had something else going. And I think I said that earlier, there was something else there and I couldn't pinpoint it in the beginning. I'm like, what exactly? Why? It's not ADHD, even though the neurologist was like, oh, she has ADHD. She can't sit down. And I thought to myself, well, shoot, find me a, you know, 20 month old that can't sit down. Right. (laughs) Really well, you know, those are kind of hard to find, you know? But I thought there's something else going. The, like I said, the, the things that tipped me off were, you know, the pressure that she was seeking. Um, she couldn't regulate her body. You know, the occupational therapist um, that we have still is wonderful. She's like, you know, she has sensory processing disorder. She, her sensories are, you know, for lack of better terms, are all over the map. Like mm-hmm. she doesn't know her own body. Like to regulate her own body, how to calm her body. Um, so, so did you find the essential oils to help with that? Did I you found the topical yeah, or just, yeah, did I, did, uh, I did some topical when she'd go to sleep at night. Um, I used some cedar wood mm. because I had read that, you know, that improved her oxygenization and her brain cells. I used lavender. Um, and I also diffused another, um, thing, that we did. So basically I've changed her diet. I've introduced, um, supplements, you know, for vitamins, minerals. Cause now by that point with lab works, I knew what I was dealing with. I changed her nutrition. I removed the gluten, the casein. Um, I had introduced essential oils, probiotics, and then I had removed as much toxins as I could from her environment and anything that she ingested or was around. The other thing I did with her was, um, and I learned this in occupational therapy, uh, our OT had said, you know, a lot of parents aren't very, um, for lack of better terms, kind of responsible or will follow through. She goes, but I know that you will. And I said, I know I'm type A. Right. <laughs> Just give it to me. What is it? I'm going to try it. Let's work with it. And she said, well, um, she goes, there's this thing called the Will Barger method. Will Barger method protocol. And basically it was developed by Patricia Wilbarger. She was, uh, she's an OT, she's written books. You can Google her, you'll find her. Um, but it's for, you know, kids like Katie who, who showed like tactile defensiveness, who 
who didn't want to be touched, who um, would shriek when they were touched um, or brushed up against like some material that they actually would have a physical reaction. Um, we used to take vacations before Katie was born to um, usually like beach areas. And um, the first time in OT when they put Katie um, to touch sand from their sandbox, she vomited. Mm. She had a complete physical reaction to touching the consistency of the sand, which just boggled my mind. I was like, how, how is that possible? But it had, had she been in the sand before on a vacation or no. this was the first time? Okay. No, it was her first time. And that's what got me thinking, oh my God, how the heck are we going to vacation? Right. This isn't going to work. Oh, our... This isn't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're, you know, red flag here. So she threw up and um, had really bad physical reaction to even touching the sand. So that's another tactile defensiveness. She was defensive of that, you know, feeling, you know? So this, you know, ROT said, um, we can introduce like a brushing. And I was like, well, what's brushing? So she showed me this protocol for, you know, for um, kids like Katie who had sensory processing disorder, who were looking for the integration portion. And basically from the time she woke up to the time she went to bed every 90 minutes, um, there's a special brush for it. And what I was doing was I was brushing her body. It's a small surgical like brush. And I was brushing her body in very methodical, precise strokes. And then once the brushing was done with firm pressure, not enough to hurt the child, of course, and the brush wouldn't hurt the child. Um, but then I would do joint compressions. So mm. what you're doing is you were stimulating and then you were giving it the joint compressions, almost like that feeling. Mm -hmm being stimulated so it was a process it was every 90 minutes um i remember we and it was taught specifically to me by my occupational therapist so if anyone's interested in that i would most definitely you know recommend talk to your occupational therapist or find one see if they're familiar and um with this method and try it um and it's supposed to calm her down so when we when i started trying it um we we saw really great results. Katie was um, regulating better. She was able to sit and attend. Now, granted, it's not just off the brush. It was, I think, a combination of everything. Mm -hmm. At this point, I'm treating the whole child mm -hmm. um, in regards to nutrition, traditional therapies, all of that stuff. So we did it. Um, there was definite decrease in her um, sensory defensiveness of being touched, of touching things. Her anxiety seemed to calm down quite a bit, which it, it had already come down a bit. So it was nice that she was able to, you know, at this point now we had her sitting in ABA groups where she was sitting and attending. She wasn't getting up and running around like she did when she saw the neurologist. She wasn't, you know, hitting her head because we would find her often hitting her head like in, in our home, like along the walls and stuff. Her body didn't know what to do. But given, given these things that I found for her and now I'm treating the whole child, it was almost like she was starting to find her zen. She was starting to find what her body needed and it was starting to all just kind of come together for her. 
Wow, that is so exciting. About how, like, how much time would you say had passed from when you started? I know you said like kind of the beginning of February was the time. And so it's like autumn yeah. time she was diagnosed. Beginning of February was when you had taken started taking the case in and yeah, you started sure. to integrate a lot of the stuff. So when did you start really seeing the, these changes that you're talking about? Like she was sitting and attending. Oh, um, I would say from, we started, um, I started treating her whole child in February. By that, late that fall going into the early next year. So I would say about 10, about 10 months later, I had a different version of the child that they told me would never even know I was there. Wow. It was, it was pretty dramatic. And I know I'm not exaggerating because people who have worked with Katie um, were saying the same thing. Her occupational therapist, her um, regular ABA team, her even at her speech, what, what, what'd you do different? Like now mm -hmm. she to sit and attend like they were noticing um the dramatic improvement that she was making and that's when i would go into okay i'm doing like all of these things you know i'm juggling like six different you know balls in the air but it's working yeah i'm keep juggling keep, keep, juggling. keep <laughs> juggling yeah i'm gonna keep juggling because yeah this is working so like i said those were the things that I can think offhand that holistic wise and alternative wise um, that worked worked with her, all those avenues. Great, I was thinking my next question was gonna be what kinds of therapies have you found to be the most effective? But what I'm kind of hearing you say is, it's kind of hard to pull out what that was because you felt like it was just this kind of combination of everything that you were doing. It's, is that correct? Or did you find yeah. something that you found um, was? Yeah, sure. It's uh, and that's a great question. It's a it was a combination of everything. Like I said, I kind of took this attitude of of helping and attending to the whole child from head to toe. You know, and like I said, that was nutrition, traditional, and alternative and holistic. Um, in regards to traditional therapies, which is usually the first step for for moms who get their kids diagnosed, um, or who who are in, you know, this world of autism, um, ABA, you know, definitely mm -hmm. helped. Um, I had her also in group ABA, uh, you know, a group of kids um, who are on the spectrum like her, who would do, you know, small projects that helped with sitting and attending that helped with, you know, a whole bunch of other areas with her socializing and things like that. Um, speech, speech is imperative. Um, and I found that, you know, you'd get you'd have some people, you know, who had kids that were nonverbal and would just give up on them really quick. Well, mm -hmm. why, why put him in speech? He doesn't talk. Mm -hmm. well, he's not going to talk if you don't put him in speech. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge advocate of um, therapies. Therapies don't hurt. Mm -hmm. They help. I've mm -hmm. never met in the past 10 years, a mother that has said, I put him in speech and it hurt him. No, it right. doesn't. Him. it can only help and if it doesn't help you tried but you have to follow through yeah thing as a parent um speech credible uh we went to expression speech therapy over here in west garden grove and they became more of a family by the time mm. uh, katie was a year into it and she she stayed there for a few years and she uh you know graduated um occupational therapy was um very big mm -hmm. um, I, I very much support occupational therapy. I know 
in speaking to um, different neurologists and different doctors who are kind of an old school mentality. They don't necessarily subscribe mm. to the thought of occupational therapy. I'll never forget a neurologist that we had uh, spoken to about Katie and met with, because we didn't only just meet with one, we met with right. two other ones. Uh, one we private paid through chalk and another one that was through our insurance based. And I remember saying to him, well, I've been reading this book on sensory processing disorder and you know, my, you know, she shows a lot of, a lot of these things with sensory problems. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, you've been talking to someone in OT, haven't you? <laughs> Real crappy. And I thought, well, so what if I have mm-hmm. like, this could help a child just because you don't believe in it. Doesn't necessarily mean that what other people are saying isn't the truth as well. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in occupational therapy, um, feeding therapy was huge. And for any moms out there who have, and this is big in the autism community, um, their children will only eat mac and cheese. Their children will only eat the nuggets. You know, they get stuck in just eating certain things. And I remember thinking to myself and having so many conversations with my husband, I remember thinking, we're not going to live like this. Like we are not going to live where we can only eat or go to a place um, that serves that specific food because that's all she'll eat. Right. I said, we need to branch this out. She used to like this. Now she doesn't, she will only eat this. How can we expand it based, um, feeding therapy. Yeah. Uh, Tell us more about that because I think that is something uh, you, you shared that with me years ago. And now even with my three-year-old, when he was a baby and growing up, I remembered this, what you told me about, and I've used it and it's been really effective. Yeah. It's, um, it is like, it was a game changer. Um, I would bring in a preferred, which for her at the time I'm going to say was, um, like a French fry house, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing. And then I would bring in all the non-preferred things like diced chicken meat, gasp, protein, mm-hmm. right? uh, you know, um, things that were now new because I had changed her diet. So basically I had a really pissed off kid who wanted the things that she used to want and she's not going to get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's going to work on the non-preferred foods. And it was like, oh, take a bite of your non-preferred. And of course, you know, the OT was amazing and would have different terminology, you know, um, to talk to her with, but basically take a bite of the non-preferred food. Okay. Now you can have a bite of your preferred food. So it was kind of this give and take with the food, but it expanded her palate and it's rough. Like, like I said, I dreaded that session every week because it was hard. I was always having to come up with ideas for the preferred and the non-preferred so that they would kind of be on the same playing field in regards to her taste. Mm -hmm. But, um, because now I was dealing with no gluten, no casein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, and it was a little bit more difficult, but she resisted. Boy, did she resist. I mean, it was like, I have a very determined, Katie's a very strong. I was just going to say, she's strong-willed that Katie. She's very, very strong. <laughs> yeah. So we really had to break her down when it came to the food, but, and you know, like scrambled egg and things like that. Um, so you know, she eventually got to the point where I think it's almost like, I don't want to say she gave up with it, but she was just like, okay, fine. I'll eat what you want me to eat. Oh, this isn't so bad. Right. Oh, they're having, mom's having me do it every week. I'm not going to get out of this. Oh, now it's twice a week. Oh, okay. Well, I might as well go with the flow. 
mom's making me eat it at home too. Well, I guess it's not so bad. And yeah. that's kind of the progression of what happened with her. I'll never forget the day in the kitchen when, you know, after so much back and forth with her and being so worried about her nutrition when it came to protein, um, cause you know, they need that for their development. Right. And I had made eggs for the umpteenth time only to be thrown away again because she just was not having it. And she, um, this one morning and I'll never forget. And I made the egg with the hope and she ate it. She grabbed mm. by her little fist, her little fist and started shoving it in her mouth and eating it. And I fell to my knees and I was like, Oh my God, like she's eating egg. She's eating it. Like Yay. <laughs> I was so thrilled. I remember calling my husband at work and I was crying and I said, she's eating eggs. She's oh. eating, like she's eating again. Like, you know, and it was, it was a big, big turning point, but feeding therapy in occupational therapy, if you can get it. Um, and like I said, if you have a child on the spectrum that has difficulty with eating, it's definitely a game changer. It's hard work. I'm not going to lie. It's hard work. Chances are for your child, it's going to be hard work. Yeah. I'm sure it's, it's, it's more difficult for someone with a child uh, who's on the spectrum, but I have to say, I've had two kids who are picky eaters that are not <laughs> on the spectrum, but you know, I, I think my old school way was like, okay, we'll finish this dinner and then you have dessert. And both yeah. of my kids are like too stubborn. They'll be like, no, nah, I'm not going to, okay, I'll go to bed hungry, you know, but like, yeah. if I like this idea of like, have a bite of this and then a little bit of that, a little bit, that, you know, like yeah. and to, to, to widen the palate. And that was inspiring Absolutely. to me because I do remember, you know, when you're, when you're a first grade teacher, you get to know the kids and what they like and what they eat, you know, we write uh -huh. about it, we talk about it. And I remember thinking, wow, Katie has quite a mature palate, you know, at the time before I heard oh, yes. that story from you. Yeah, she really expanded her palate. I mean, but it, like I said, that one was our, our really, really hard work, but I'm really glad that we stuck it through. It's, it's just, it's night and day. Yeah. So, I mean, feeding your kid real food. Yeah. Food from, you know, farm to table especially when you're trying to heal their gut, especially when you're trying to get rid of that brain fog, especially when you're trying to change your overall nutrition, it's a big deal. It's yeah. A big deal. Um, Absolutely. Those, those things definitely helped. Um, other things that, I mean, like I, I got my hands on everything I could. I had her in community groups, uh, row and plays, gymnastics, peewee sports, anything that helped with her socialization and to grow her independence, I was on it. Um, those were, were good for her to be around um, other kids that were quote unquote typical mm -hmm. um, so that you know she would blend in. And I don't wanna give anyone the impression that I ever wanted to change Katie. Katie is who Katie is. I wanted to give her the foundational skills that she wasn't presented with um, and give her a better, a better shot at, at life of being mm -hmm. independent, you know? Um, and that was a big thing. I celebrate who she is as an individual because she's funny. She's quirky. She's sarcastic. She is highly intelligent. She is. She's delightful. You know, and she's very delightful. She really is. I also created um, a real quick, a home learning environment, like pretty much if, you know, you go to Lakeshore Learning, her entire bedroom was Lakeshore learning as mm -hmm. much as you get. Um, everything was a learning opportunity. And that's another big deal. Um, I know it's a lot of work for 
moms who are trying to juggle other children. Believe me, I had another child, an older child. I still was trying to, um, you know, work and keep my household together and, you know, be a wife and a mother and everything. But I created a learning environment for her. So everything became a learning environment. Katie was, for example, Christmas rolled around um, her first two Christmases and she was just like, I don't understand this whole thing about unwrapping. Mm. But what I would do is I would, you know, go to the, the store and buy little knickknacks, wrap them up and, you know, pretend like we were unwrapping on Christmas morning. She would, she got it. Mm-hmm. Halloween, we would practice trick or treating at our front door or the neighbor's door. God bless him. He would, he would let us mm-hmm. um, to prepare her for Halloween. Mm-hmm. for valentine's um weeks leading up to valentine's here's a heart we're going to cut hearts out i know it's hard for you to hold the scissors but we're going to try every everything that i could do i used as a learning opportunity so katie was at a small point in her therapy obsessed with bathrooms mm. like restrooms the signs mm-hmm. and we'd go into target or we go into grocery store and she would boom run like elope and run and what I mean by Katie used to have behaviors is she was an eloper she was fast Mm. she would run from me uh, when she didn't get her way boom she was on the ground and she would drop she would kick she would um, did everything except for biting thank Mm. goodness I locked out where she wasn't a biter Mm. but you know she would run straight to the bathroom and have to look at those male and female signs on the bathroom doors. Mm. Yeah, it was just an obsession she had, which is not uncommon where, you know, autistic kids perseverate on something. And for her, that was one of it, one of her things for a short amount of time. So I would go into the store with, you know, her ABA therapist and boom, she would try to take off and I go, uh-uh. And mm. I would direct her. We'd mm-hmm. go for an aisle and she, uh-uh, 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 protesting, uh-uh look at this, look at this, you know, and then, you know, make our way through the whole store. Okay. Now we could go look at the bathroom sign. Mm. Then it got to the point where we would go in the store, we'd go down all the aisles and she didn't care about the bathroom sign. Mm. And it was just a non-existent thing. Mm -hmm. Hey, sometimes McKenna, my older one will say, I remember when Katie, when you used to like the bathroom sign so much and Katie's like, I did. Why would I like Mm. it? And I was like, I'll tell you about it someday. Right. (laughs) Oh, Lordy. Yeah, definitely. Well, I have to say that must take the patience of a saint. And I'm sure you have to at least have some moments of self-compassion for yourself, right? Where you take a deep breath and honor all this work that you've been doing. Oh yeah. Those, those were really, really hard days. And um, yeah, sometimes you just, you know, push them, push them out of your mind and move on. But then, you know, you need to, as a mom, also find your, your self-care and whatever that looks like, you need to do it. Yeah. To just mentally be able to keep going because it's exhausting. Yeah. You were saying about when you were in that neurologist's office Mm -hmm. and you kind of, it was this idea of like, you knew that you had it in you, but you didn't know what that was going to look like, or you didn't Absolutely. know like who this mother was that you were going to become. Oh, so yeah. I was just wondering, you know, you know, do you have any um, thing that you wish you had known? Like if you could be Geraldine now, what would you say to Geraldine that was sitting in that neurologist office? 
I would say, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid of the diagnosis. I think for a lot of moms who suspect that their child's on the spectrum, they just, you know, we get so fixated on labels um, as a society, I feel that if someone tells you your child's autistic, don't be afraid of the diagnosis. That's what they're saying. That's what he or she might, you know, always be, but that's not where the potential stops. Mm. Um, Another thing I think I would say to myself then and to any mom that needs it is, um, you know, there's no individual map to your journey. There's no one that's going, you're not going to find a person that's going to say, you know, hey, follow this exact, exact route, make a left, make a right, go over the hill, and there you are. You're not going to find, because every kid is different. Mm. And that's, you know, that gives to the spectrum. It's a variety, it's a wide range of, of different things, you know, but you do, you do your best to navigate, um, you know, to follow your gut. I wish, you know, I did, thank goodness. I mean, mm. I my gut, I followed my instinct a lot and um, the navigation and navigating through all the different therapies and schools and treatments and everything. So, you know, I would say just stay, stay the course. Don't be afraid of the diagnosis and um, see where the journey takes you because it really is a journey. And I relied a lot on, uh, a lot on prayer, Mm. a lot on my faith um, and uh, the faith of, of, of friends who I have who aren't exactly my same faith. Mm -hmm who believe in, in, in something bigger, um, not of this world. And I would, you know, definitely rely a lot on prayer from anybody who wanted to give it to me at the time that number one, I wouldn't lose it. Thank goodness I didn't. Mm-hmm. And number two, that, that, um, my Katie would progress. I had a, a friend of a friend who actually had gone on pilgrimage in Europe to where, um, in the Catholic faith, faith, uh, or, uh, our lady, the blessed mother had appeared and, um, there's a small water. Lords. Lords. Yeah. Yes. I've been there. Okay. Beautiful. Right. Mm. So this was in the first year of her, of, of, you know, our journey with her in, in, um, navigating everything. And I reached out to her friend and I said, you know, I know you don't know me. I said, but here's my situation. I go, could, you know, you please, um, when you're there, pray for my daughter my Katie she not only did that she wrote her her name on a little piece of paper and stuck it in the wall over there she brought back holy water Mm. sent it to me and she said you know here's this blessed holy water from that from the land and do with it what you want you know and for the longest time until it ran out I would pray over Katie and I would put a little bit on her forehead, a little bit on her heart and a little bit on her feet. Mm. I would pray for her, you know, all the things that I wanted for her. Um, And yeah, faith is a big thing, whatever Mm. your faith is and however you lean, um, definitely rely on that because it's going to sustain you in the lowest point. We actually have video of Katie at her first birthday and in those months leading up to when she did regress in that fall of her being uh, very social, of her looking, of her development being on, you know, on, on time. Um, They're hard for me to watch. Mm. My husband has watched them. 
um, it got to a certain point where I didn't want to watch them because I didn't want to be reminded of what was and then what wasn't. Mm. Um, it's like a grief. It I is. Imagine. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing I want, you know, to any moms out there, it's okay to grieve. Mm. Okay to grieve. It really is. And people think, well, you grieve when people die. You grieve when, you know, someone dies suddenly or someone battled an illness. No, what I mean is that you grieve the child that you thought was going to happen the mm. way you thought it was going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's hope. There's all these things that you can try to do um, to help them. But in a sense, you know, you do grieve. You mm-hmm. grieve. You picture it in your mind like any mother does, like any mother, you know, who had a little baby boy who says he's going to play baseball. He might never play baseball. He might not be able to even coordinate a, and hold a bat. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, you know, you grieve those ideas mm-hmm. doesn't mean that, you know, you're grieving the loss of, of your child physically. You're, you're grieving the loss of the idea. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that comes back to you, not sure. I mean, in Katie's case, it did. A lot of what I grieved at the time, thinking that wasn't, you know, might not be possible for her, became possible for her. Um, now that Katie is uh, 10 10 years old and she's so much more articulate. Her speech is amazing. I have asked her throughout the years, um, what was it? Do you remember when you didn't talk? You know, and of course, sometimes she's just like, I remember, you know, when I didn't talk, I said, do you remember when, you know, we used to do this in OT and do that? She goes, and she's actually been very insightful on some things, which, Mm. you know, she'll tell me, she goes, well, I used to push, I used to push on the couch and I used to push on, on, on the wall because my body felt wiggly inside. Mm. And I used to say, Oh, it felt like, like ants in your pants type thing. And she goes, it used to feel really tickly in my mm. skin, my bones. So mm. for a child who's nonverbal or for a mother who has a child that's nonverbal and you wonder why do they do these things with their bodies? Why do they push? Why do they seek the stimulation, why, why can't they just sit and attend and stuff? Here I have kind of come a little bit full circle with my daughter who's articulate now, who can tell me, mom, this is how it felt and it was really weird. I don't feel like that anymore, but I remember that's how it used to feel. Yeah. You wonder, you wonder what these kids are thinking. Mm-hmm. What a gift her insight is exactly. for, other, for other kids who may not be able to put it into words. Exactly. She is very, very articulate. Much. She what is. a gift she, she is. Yes, is. <laughs> I know. But yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's always advice for, for parents, for moms out there. Um, yeah, that was going to be my last question for you is, um, do you yeah. have any, and you've given us so many practical takeaways already, you know, about oh, diet, sure. essential oils, everything. So yeah. I would just want, I know you, you kind of alluded to earlier, maybe a, a list of books that you uh, found yeah. uh, helpful. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering if you had any, you know, last minute practical takeaways for listeners who may have a child whom they suspect may be on the autism spectrum, or sure. maybe was recently diagnosed. Um, yeah, um, I guess, you know, my advice would be, you know, a few things, but I would say that if your child is already like, you know, in therapies, if you've already, you know, started the therapy route with your child or whatever, um, you know, don't be afraid to, to change from that route, you know, like some, some therapies will yield results, some won't, you know, and I found that parents often stay with the hope of, you know, results, 
But if it's not working, it's not working. You know, don't wait years, mm. wait, wait months because you don't want to waste this valuable time of early intervention. So just because it's convenient, just because he's been doing it for two years, just because, you know, that's the only place you've ever looked at. If it's not working, move on, find, find something else, you know, do your research. Um, Because early intervention is just so imperative because of the rapid period of, of growth in the brain. Mm. The other thing is carry over, carry over in your home. Um, A lot of parents who get into therapies, send them to speech for 30 minutes. They come out. Oh, that's it. We're done. Mm-hmm. No, carry it over into the home. So many times Katie would bang on the pantry door. I know what she wanted. Hello, I live with the child. I know what she wanted, but she was going to work for it. Mm-hmm. So the banging was, you know, ignored. Then it became the grunting, which caught my attention. That was going to be ignored. How about we try coo, 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 coo for cookie? Make the child mm-hmm. work for it. Mm-hmm. Kids are resilient. Um, they really are. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't feel that you're being hard on your child. You're making them work for the, the better good. And like I said, with Katie, I treated the whole child. Don't, it wasn't all rainbows and roses. I am not painting that kind of picture. It was a lot of hard work. It was We hit a lot of plateaus, but plateaus were usually, you know, followed by, a, you know, a big span of progress. Mm. You know, I, I once early, early in Katie's journey had met... Um, Someone who had said, well, you know, if her, if her cognition is there, then she's got a good chance. And for Katie, you know, she scored low initially in her cognition, but as I worked with her, her cognition grew, she was starting to understand the connections were starting to, you know, be made and that, that really helped. Um, Along the way, in regards to books, like you said, Michelle, um, I did find some books that I found extremely helpful and believe me, I went through so many books. <laughs> the Autism Book by Dr. Uh, Bob Sears. It was a great book that kind of guided me with um, her nutrition, that guided me with uh, her vitamin stuff. It also talks about biomedical and medical stuff. It is a great read and it's really, um, it's pretty easy to understand because you'll, you'll come across some books that just, you're like, what? I don't, I can't follow this. But this is definitely um, one of the books that I did really enjoy. And it talks about the gluten-free, casein-free. Another book I really um, liked in regards to occupational therapy was called uh, The Out of Sync Child. It's um, by Carol Kranowitz. Uh, she's a OT and she wrote this book. And it is a wonderful book. It is out of all of the occupational therapy books that had to do with sensory processing disorder, meaning you know, the sensories for the kiddos are kind of out of whack. Um, this was the most understandable mm. called the out of sync child recognizing and coping with sensory processing disorder. Um, it's kind of the parent's Bible to SPD. Mm. Um, it is easier to understand for sure. Um, and it really gives you really great insight. Um, I remember reading in here where it said that, you know, sensory processing disorder can stand alone, but it often coexists with and complicates other problems. So for the long, for a little while there, I thought maybe it's just sensory processing disorder. Maybe she just has that. But the more I read, the more I became informed, I thought, 
these two things for her go hand in hand, mm. the autism and the sensory processing disorder. Mm-hmm. So the book for OT and sensory processing is excellent. Great. I'll link both of those in the, in the show notes too. Yeah. Great. Thanks. The other book that um, I found was um, a smaller book that I just happened to find on a whim. It's called Parenting Girls on the Autism Spectrum. Mm. I mean, the challenges and celebrating the gifts. It's by Eileen Riley Hall. Um, she is from, I believe it's from England. She wrote this book. She has two daughters, one that has Asperger's and one that has autism. So what I found really great about that book, you know, often when we hear about autism and talk about autism, it's always boy, boy, boy. This was also a great book because it gave a lot of insights on um, raising girls, which you don't hear much about that. You, like I said, you hear more about, you know, the boys being on the spectrum and things like that. Um, This was really important because since I had an older daughter and um, I wanted her to be able to... um, have a sister Mm -hmm. we did in vitro you know and went through all that so that my older one would have a sibling um so she wouldn't be an only child but i wanted her to have a sibling and not be a caretaker Mm -hmm. so that was really important um in this book it gives you hope um on how how siblings how to make sure that they're siblings rather than caretaker and a Mm -hmm. um But I remember there's one line in here where it says, you know, I'm hoping with time and a deep enough bond that responsibility will not seem such a burden, but more a labor of love. And I found that to be really heartwarming in regards to both of my girls, that it Mm. would be more. And now you look at them and they're just two peas in a pod. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then the last um, book that I found really interesting was um, when it came to IEPs and dealing with the school district, um, Rights Law, uh, W-R-I-G-H-T-S Law. Um, They wrote a book called All About IEPs. There's a lot of um, answers to questions about IEPs. Um, Really easy to read. I like the way it was broken down. Uh, Besides all the information that I looked for online, this was also a really great insight onto um, how to navigate through your IEP um, and also your state and federal laws and what's in your favor. And then the last thing that I did take a look at early on in our journey when I said I was trying to, you know, basically make a program for Katie that was going to have all of these different facets and how they would be woven together. Um, Something that reinforced my thought on her needing a larger program, meaning more ABA hours, more OT, more speech, more this, more that, anything I can get my hands on, was uh, Dr. Lovas's study out of UCLA. Um, In 1987, he created, um, he did a study on autistic children and, you know, how, how their intellectual functioning would be with young autistic kids who received more hours of intense program, you know, of an intense program versus the children who didn't. And, you know, his studies, his studies proved the Lovas um, Institute is still up and running at UCLA. It basically reinforced my idea that 40 hours a week, 30 hours a week of intense one-to-one would yield better results, especially in this kind of zero to five range. Mm -hmm. Because his study proved that, you know, the, the kids, their cognition and social skills, you know, by the time they were reaching first grade who had received the intense 40 hour program that they were indistinguishable from. Mm -hmm. 
And that, that was a lot of Katie. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that as a first grade teacher. That was Katie. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really. Right. <laughs> oh, well, please give her a big hug for me and McKenna. Sure and will. thank you so much for being my guest today. It was so lovely to for, chat with you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope that whoever's listening that, you know, especially for um, any, any moms who suspect that their child might be on the spectrum or who want to try different things um, can take away something from our journey. I'm more than happy, happy to help. And I know that it can be a struggle, but you're not alone. Thank you so much for joining us today. To learn more about today's guest and a wide range of other wellness professionals, please visit our global wellness community at wellville.com. W-E-L-V-I-L.com. I look forward to meeting you next time on the road to Wellville.